Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live from Washington, D.C. Burke Allen here, and our sponsor of the program is Speaker Match, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. What does that mean? Well, it's a marketplace where meeting planners and speakers come together to find one another in these days to figure out how that all works with lots of speakers unable to speak at in-person conferences. As things shift online and you need intel, get it at speakermatch.com. Well, with the pandemic and as we come out of the pandemic, it's affected all sorts of industries, including creative folks. So we wanted to talk to one of the most creative guys I know about how he's weathering the pandemic storm and what he sees for the future of creative folks and entertainment folks. And that's my friend Danny Boyd, who uh, has done a little bit of everything. He's been a, a writer, a movie maker, even a wrestler, a professional wrestler. He's a, a, a longtime instructor of young people uh, at the collegiate level. He's, he's done it all. He's even written a, a musical version of one of his films. So Danny Boyd joins us today. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and for folks who are not familiar with you, let's let's rewind all the way back to the the public unveiling of Danny Boyd. When would would people have first become aware of you? What was your first foray into uh, the creative and entertainment world? Nineteen seventy nine. I I finished my first semester of film school at the University of Arkansas. Had the good fortune of meeting Steve Gilliland as my classmate. And we took off and made a documentary about contemporary hobos uh, in the South. And it hit PBS. So, you know, that rest is history. You were just a college kid then, and suddenly you've got a documentary on the public broadcasting system airing all over the country. That's got to be a real head turner. Or as a kid, did you think, oh, this just comes easy. This is the way it's supposed to work in life. Uh, nothing comes easy. You know that. <laughs> it just No, but, I, but I, a lot of luck has certainly come my way, you know, and, I'm, and I embrace it. Tell me about that documentary. So it was about contemporary hobos. Did you do as many documentary filmmakers do? I mean, were you right there in the middle of it? Were you... Were you hopping on trains and heading across the country? Were you, you know, living outdoors for a while? How close did you get to your subjects? I, d- I did all that. And that was that was kind of my excuse. You know, I've always been a kid of, with wanderlust. I mean, e- even our new children's book, uh, Adventures of Wanderla, is. Uh, so I, I think I kind of used filmmaking as an excuse. You know, I, I, it was kind of hard to tell my parents, like, you know, I'm just going to take off and, and hop the rails and go to missions and stay in hobo jungles but when i would say well but i'm going to make a movie about it it was just sort of a way of justifying it and that's sort of all of my experiences in my 41 years in entertainment is uh you know uh vicariously getting to experience uh these subjects and uh, these characters and these situations did Living amongst that homeless population, the hobo population in the late 70s, did that uh, expand your empathy, do you think? Or were you already that guy and and this just sort of shined a spotlight on it? Yes, a lot of empathy. You know, it just it really 
made me aware of addiction and how much that is a part of it. And see, I was just sort of caught up with the uh, mythos of Woody Guthrie and um, uh, what was uh, Kerouac. Jack Kerouac, sure. Yeah, and, and all that, you know, and I was just kind of buying into that. And I think I probably over-romanticized it. But, uh, you know, it was certainly an interesting experience. What did you learn most that surprised you once you started filming that documentary that, that you didn't expect to know? Well, it's long before people really have talked about that, but it's just, it's, it's like we're all one click away from being in that world. And I realized it at that time, man, the, these were, and a lot of them were old heads, you know, or older people. And it was, it was like, they'd had families, you know, they had good jobs and, uh, uh, you know, and it's like it's like others. Oh, it's usually substance abuse and mental disorders. Um, but you know, it was um, we're we're all we're all one click away from being in that world. Danny Boyd is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. We're talking about uh, how creative folks are making it through the pandemic, and and I think that's a good place to to talk about how folks who are experiencing mental illness and this huge downturn in the economy uh, is affecting people who are, are in the creative arts. You know, many of them are, are gig workers. You know, they, they live somewhat paycheck to paycheck anyway, because they've chosen an artistic lifestyle. As you talk to other creative people, uh, are you seeing any common themes here in, in how people are making it through or, or suffering through this pandemic? You know, it's funny because <clears throat> I went full speed ahead. I had to. I, I, I was I was going nuts, but but I was already at that pace anyway. I'd already written a new show. I was uh, thinking about the next one. But uh, we did one of our creators here, and uh, and uh, some of my favorite authors were were a part of it. And almost all of them were saying, "But I can't." I, Denise Gerardino, she was just right, right around the corner from me. And she was saying, I'm just so bombarded by the news. I can't work, you know, and I think, what? Wow, that, that sucks because this is what you should do. Right. You know, and uh, whenever there's a problem, what do you do? You, you do what you do. Um, but for me, it's, you know, it's, I, I, I would just go crazy. I mean, I have an audio book <clears throat> every day or at night. I have a physical book every day, different book, and I write every day and now we're we're managing uh, the completion of the adventures of, of wandala and larry gross is writing the last song of our second show we've done together a kids show miss dirt turtles garden club musical so you are juggling an awful lot of uh, of balls in the air right now and 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 that's not unlike you even though you're you've retired from your career as a a college professor, one of those hoity-toity academic types. You still got a lot going on. <laughs> hey, I want to take you back again, Danny. So you you done the uh, did this PBS documentary about the hobo lifestyle. It's the late seventies. You grew up outside Washington D.C., but you you've gone to school in Arkansas. So what happens after that documentary? Where do you go then? Uh, make another movie. It was like um, you know I, I finished I finished uh, my master's degree there. And I was looking for – I thought the best thing that someone with film experience could do would be work as an AV tech guy 
at like a um, a small college, and that was the job I got there at Southern in Williamson, Southern West Virginia Community College, where I was the the TV director. We had a cable access show. Uh, I, I th- you were you were you were on radio then. Um, That's deep in the heart of the the coal fields right there at the West Virginia Kentucky state line. For folks who are listening and may not be familiar with it. That's uh, that's quite a change from the distant D.C. suburbs. But did you, did you feel at home there in Williamson, or were you a fish out of water? Um, I had to be a fish out of water, but I absolutely loved it. I mean, if you look at my work, probably eighty percent of the body of my work, from movies to books, to graphic novels, it it was all born out of Mango County. You know, it, it still it still inspires me. Paradise Park. It was set in Mingo County, uh, Carbon, set in Mingo County. Um, and I also worked uh, your nearby campus there at Logan, too. So, uh, yeah, no, it was it was such a rich time. Pe- people complain about it, but I'm thinking it was wonderful. And, Burke, you remember before the four lane? Man, you didn't get there from here. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, – you were very far removed and – and people who hear those thick Appalachian accents, uh, they were much thicker just a generation ago because you were geographically removed from the rest of the world. You were you know, two hours away from any sort of metropolitan area, and, uh, and folks very much were, were sort of stuck there uh, down deep in those Appalachian mountains. So, so I guess this would take us to the 80s, and then you were involved in a, a movie we talked about before we started the podcast – that uh, has really endured, and it's it's become one of those popular independent films of all time. It's certainly a cult favorite movie called Mate One, and that's a, a movie by the great director John Sayles. And Mate One is actually the name of a small town there in Mingo County. So how did you get involved in, in that process where you became a, a part of the movie Mate One? Well, John Sayles and Maggie Ramsey were the, and are – of the biggest heroes of independent filmmakers. And John and Maggie were doing a workshop in New York. And, and we had connected somehow. It was before uh, internet then, but, but we had connected. So I went to the workshop and, w- and it was wonderful in New York. And that's, I think that's when they told us they're making this movie and they're shooting in West Virginia. And I'm going, oh, thank you, God. Uh, for this so um, and again as I was talking to you before we we went live uh, I highly recommend the new blu-ray version of it's I mean Haskell Wexler's work is just so beautiful that nearly every frame you want to pause it and and hang it on the wall and there's also a supplemental making of that my good friend and former student Jason Brown uh, made uh, that goes with it. There's a lot of interviews with with um, with all the participants. The movie we're talking about is Mate One by the great John Sayles. Danny Boy was a part of that film. And if you're not familiar with the movie, it's a story of of unions coming into labor unions coming in to help those coal miners in the early part of the 20th century, and uh, and how at that time miners were were paid not even in real money. They were paid in company script that was only redeemable at the company store. And if you were hurt in the mines, you were pretty much just drummed on out of there as if you were, a, a, you know, an ox. Uh, and probably the, the cattle, the horses, were more valuable than the men uh, prior to the unionization down there. Um, 
when you look back on that movie now, I think that movie's over 30 years old now, and 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 uh, and you watch it, and then some of those themes are still relevant today. Does that make you? Do you think? Geez, are we getting anywhere here? No, it's the uh, same thing. Same thing. I think when um, worked with you on the graphic novel Carbon, uh, when our buddy Scott Hill hired Larry and I to adapt Paradise Park as a musical, and it was thirty plus years later, and we sat down and watched the movie, and it was like. Nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah. it, so it all comes back around. Danny Boyd, our guest today, and uh, he's a, an acclaimed filmmaker and uh, graphic novelist, and I could go on and on and on. And we're talking about not only his background, but how creative folks are are dealing with life in this post-pandemic world. Um, so after the movie Mate One, it was time for you to put your big boy pants on, and and you made a trilogy of films. Right there in in West Virginia, where you were teaching at West Virginia State College, and and boy, you you bootstrapped these three movies that still have life today. So let's walk through those. The first one is the movie Chillers, which is a, a mm-hmm. horror anthology. Um, how did that come to be? Um, well, I was I was really wanting to make a feature, but I thought it was impossible until. I met John and Maggie, you know, and got involved with May One. Most most of the film community that out of West Virginia now, the the film school was John Sales for us. And I watched and I and I said, you know, I, we can do this. It's not it's not rocket science, you know. It's it's tedious, but 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 we can do this. And I also knew that I needed to write a a movie that could be shot in short short period of time but not straight because all i I knew five literally five film actual film guys in the whole state wow in the entire state of west virginia and 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 i and i got them all you know i got them all involved um and what we would do and the reason i did and i liked anthology anyway i like those old hammer horror movies that had three or four stories sure that would tie together. Uh, but I need practically, I uh, wanted to do anthology because we could shoot one weekend a month. We pick, you know, one shoot a month and three days we'd wrap a story. So we would keep the continuity and keep people together. Uh, the other reason I wrote like that is I just didn't know if I was strong enough as a writer to carry one story arc feature length. Um, but again, lucky, lucky me, you know, uh, that that's the chillers is a gift that keeps on giving for me. God bless trauma. When, uh, when you go in to do an independent film like that, and, and this is before you and I knew each other, uh, how much of that is Danny Boyd? Uh, did you write the script and direct the film and produce the film? I mean, were you kind of the guy that, that made all those big decisions? Yes. Um, I wrote all the scripts and it's, it's ironic that I'm primarily a writer now because the only reason I became a writer is because I couldn't get anyone else to write my, my stories. So that's how I learned to be a, a, a screenwriter, but I was always the writer and the director, but I always had uh, wonderful co-producers and I actually had the same two guys, David Wool and Andy Gallagher on all three of the, uh, of the features. And, Bill Richardson, who you know, yes. uh, worked 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 on all of them. So 
we, and we all still work together. So when when a movie comes out like Chillers, your first feature in in West Virginia, uh, which is a pretty small rural state, and you've got all the the local folks involved. Tell me what it's like to to open that movie. Uh, did did you do an opening in a theater, and did the whole town come out, the whole state support you? What what do you remember about uh, the public unveiling of your first movie? The whole state came out, and I mean it. It, it this 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 could have only happened in West Virginia, you know, and, and most other states where you came out and said, you know, I want to make this feature film, and I don't have any money. They say, yeah, right. Everyone in West Virginia said, wow, how can we help? And boy, have they. And, and did they. But we four-walled it, Burke. You know, you know that's the way uh, we used to do it. Uh, if you didn't have a big distribution deal, um, you'd book theaters. And we made, we made money on that. Um, and then we got a distribution deal with um, – uh, a startup in the booming video industry called Radon Entertainment. And the movie just blew up, man. It was, it, I mean, it's in 30 some foreign countries and um, video stores around the world. Um, and, you know, the, the, then the distribution went to Toronto, which is another story, but it was a, it was a perfect time for, for, for me as a filmmaker, um, there were two windows of opportunity when a young independent filmmaker with limited resources could have success. The drive-in industry, the Roger Corman's, and then the boom of home video. And the reason why there was a, a such a boom for independence is that majors stayed away from it. You know, they, you know, they, they didn't want to be involved. They, you know, sort of like the early days of, of television and film. Right. So, man, we, we flooded right in. So you had every, uh, every video store, mom and pop video store that had uh, Betamax and then VHS. There was a copy of Chillers. Danny Boyd, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, powered by Speaker Match. He is a, a creative a writer, a filmmaker, and lots more. And, uh, that was your first film. The second film, uh, you decided to do sort of this, this comedy sci-fi film uh, called Strangest Dreams. And that was a, a little more ambitious than the horror movie. You had to have actual special effects. And this is way before the days of CGI. So was there a time when you're writing this that, that you go, well, this looks great on the page, but I have no idea how I'm going to make this work visually? Man, naivete was always my strength. If I had known, if I had known better, I would not have done it because that was a big movie. That was twenty-eight days, um, it was, and it was like the Death March baton. Uh, but, but the, the funny thing, Burke, is that was the first screenplay that I wrote, and then and I realized, well. You know that's not practical for my first feature. So, so then I wrote Chillers. So I, I had I had that script, and I just absolutely loved um, the National Lampoon movies, which were just starting then. I loved the magazine at, at, at junior high. It was, it was like, thank you God, there are people like me. <laughs> uh, and then and then the the early Lampoon, the, the John Landis films, Animal House, Blues Brothers, and I and I thought, man. A West Virginia lampoon 
kind of story could really work. And but I didn't want, to, which I was still what well, was often accused of making fun of West Virginians. Uh, not when you watch, you know, it, at first you think that is, but in, in every of those depictions that I've made, by the end, the mirror turns back to the audience and like, who's laughing at who? Uh, but mostly I just wanted to make a funny movie. Right. And uh, a lot of it had poignancy that uh, that uh, certainly West Virginians got, but I think people all over the world. I mean, it was distributed around the world as well. And that movie I remember because at that time, you know, I'm in native West Virginia and I had, had left the state and I remember uh, I was doing morning radio in Savannah, Georgia and, and boom, there's a Danny Boyd movie on late at night on the USA radio network, USA television network rather. And I thought, wow, here's a guy that, that uh, is from right back there where I'm from and he's doing it. He's really doing it. The show uh, was, uh, you know, nationally syndicated. So your movie was on late night television everywhere. A little Danny Boyd movie. Did did that ever uh, give you pause? And you think, wow, is that something where you said, I, you know, we've we've really made it here. We've really done something. No, it was the opposite. It, it was a it was a horrible experience. Really, tell me and about I, that. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. No one remembers it. Except, and I was with Jesse Johnson, who played Vic Twenty. He was in all the other movies. I, w- I was with him in Topanga Canyon visiting when uh, the first uh, USA, and they played the hell out of it. Right. But the first was with Gilbert Godfrey. What a jerk! I mean, you know what? I I can appreciate being made fun of, but he was just mean. You know, and I don't even think he watched the movies. He just, you know, did his shtick. Uh, but I could, I could, I could only make it through a half hour of it. I have never watched it ever since then, and I'm still going to run into him one of these days. Uh, but I mean, it was just, it was just mean, and and they chopped the movie up to where it didn't even make sense. And I remember it was ironic. House of Dung scene I think is the funniest scene in, in the whole movie. It's one funniest scene I ever wrote. Right. They, they, they took it out of the out. They took it out of the movie because it wasn't appropriate. Yet they were having uh, live phone sex commercials. You know that's the irony. Now, also at the same time was up all night with Rhonda, and she played the movie too. And she was awesome. You know that's that's how it goes. She she was funny and it wasn't demeaning. Uh, so you know that that was the other side of the, uh, of of that coin, but you're right. What people remember is like, man, I was on it was on USA Network. But my very first short film, Coal Dust Fairy Dust, was on USA Network on a show called Night Flight. That was the biggest cult show in the country, and. They played the heck out of Cold Dust, Fairy Dust, which was shot right there in, in Williamson. So, you know, I got a broadcast premiere with my even my first narrative short film. Oh, wow. We're talking to Danny Boyd uh, right now about his, his movie career, and he went on to, to be a writer and uh, and playwright and so much more. The, the third movie uh, that you did, I guess, would be the most ambitious, and that's Paradise Park because you brought in – for the first time, some quasi-big name celebrity talent into that film. Uh, did that change the dynamic of making that movie? 
didn't change the dynamic because because all the all the stars were just awesome, wonderful human beings. But the reason I went with, uh, you know, like my favorite wrestler Dusty Rhodes and Porter Wagner as the governor and T Graham Brown and Webb Wilder and all, they were they had their fan bases, but they weren't Screen Actors Guild. And at that time, they did, there was no low side. You were either union or you were not union. So I couldn't I couldn't use any union talent. So I went because after, you couldn't afford them. Is that right? Because that would have right, blown the budget. Right, because, okay. What, well, I mean, they got paid the same, the the big names. But um, I would have to pay the whole uh, company. Right. Uh, uh, and you know, we were barely paying anybody anything. But I think it worked. I think the quirkiness of it. I mean, Dusty Rose is just wonderful. Porter Wagner is wonderful. Johnny Paycheck, you know, Johnny Paycheck wasn't even in the script. Do, do, can, do you have time for that story? Tell me. How we got him. Yeah. Okay. So Johnny, if you look back through history, got a little brush with the law and shot a guy in a bar in Ohio. That's right. And he was pardoned for some reason. And held held by his babysitter in West Virginia, and we were we were close to sh- you know start starting to shoot, and they contacted me and said you know Johnny's available and he would he'd like to be part of it. Can he do some music? And I said, well, that would be great, but why don't we put him in it? So they said. Sure. So I didn't have a part. So in, in the script, wherever it said man, other man, neighbor, whatever, I turned all those lines into the character Lamar. And that's how Johnny Paycheck oh, got in the fantastic. movie. Uh, Paradise Park yeah. is the movie. Danny Boyd is the filmmaker. And that's available, of course, for you to purchase online. And uh, you can visit Danny at DanielBoyd.com. Now, you did three movies in you know a fairly short amount of time over, I guess, a a five-year time span and then that was it for feature films were you were you burned out uh was it uh, what what was the reason that that you stopped making movies then well two reasons um i I didn't plan to stop but i was finally getting some attention and i wrote a script called vista uh historic fiction about uh uh, a young naive Vista worker out of Michigan that comes to Mingo County. And um, Robert Redford's producer, um, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute, Patrick Markey, uh, optioned the script. And I was used to three of us sitting in a room and saying, You want to make this movie? And, you know, we did it. And so I, I literally went through the development hell of that. And that ultimately burned me out. But the other thing, Burke, I think primarily the reason I did it is, man, my people would walk on fire and glass for me. I couldn't do that to them again. I mean, I could take it again, but I can't put them through that to make little to no money. I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do that. Uh, so actually, that sort of drifted all the way into. Uh, me deciding to to apply for Fulbright and move to Africa, and I thought I I said oh, I'll just I'll just set that down. Well, you don't set things down in Hollywood. When they're done, they're done. So that's just how that evolved. 
Danny Boyd, Fulbright Scholar, living in Africa, which is a long way from small-town West Virginia. Uh, you've done three movies that, that have done very well. You've uh, been you know, on national uh, television. You've gotten a script optioned by Robert Redford's folks, and then you just cash it all in and, and move to Africa. Tell me about that experience. Um, it, it is the wanderlust the sort of thing, you know, and it's what, um, you know, and it's, it was ni- 97 and I, it's crazy out of the blue. I caught a bad bout of pneumonia and man, it kicked my butt. And I was young mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I couldn't do anything. So I just, I ordered the Fulbright catalog and started going through the different countries. And really what I wanted, I wanted to go to India, uh, but there wasn't anything there, but I found one in Tanzania and I looked up where it was. I thought, mm, that's pretty awesome if you're going to go anywhere. And that's how that gig happened. You know, I was, I was, I was quarantined at home and wrote the application. And then I've got uh, two more Fulbrights and I'm now eligible for uh, another one because it's been 10 years. What an incredible honor to be a Fulbright Scholar. And and what do you remember about your time in Tanzania? What stands out the most? It's just, it's just so wonderful, Burke. I mean, this stereotype, you know, you and I have had to fight stereotypes forever, but it's the same in Africa, too. You know, you, 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 you think of the horrors. but And there are. There are indeed. But in Tanzania, the, the people were just were just wonderful. And they were hungry, man. They'd only had TV for a few years. I mean, I, I helped set up the first film school at a university in the country. Um, and man, they were they were just into it, and they just enriched my life so much. Uh, I lived good. I mean, they, they said the pay wasn't good, but by our standards, the pay was good as a Fulbright. Sure. I had a really nice, I had a really nice flat on campus, and. I leased a car and, you know, it was like driving through Beirut, but, you know, I managed and every, every day, every day was, was glorious there. And I'm, I still miss them all. My guest is Danny Boyd. This is the big time talker podcast. Danny, one of the most fascinating guys I know. And we wanted to talk to him about the challenges of creative folks in this time of the pandemic and post pandemic, but I wanted to get into Danny's background a little, because I think that informs the way that, that he's dealing with with things today. So you came back from Tanzania and did what? Huh. Jeez, I'm trying to run the years ago. I mean, stayed stayed busy. Um, Continued to teach the whole time when. Uh, oh yeah, when yeah. No, no, I, no. I was I was full time with uh, Western State University the whole time, except for my first two gigs. You know, and, and even adjunct at Marshall and College of Graduate Studies and. And all that. But no, thank God for West Virginia State. I mean, and David Wolf hiring me. You know, that's, you know, I've just had a, a wonderful life. I did industrials, which paid quite well. Um, I did um, um, some other commercial work. Um, but, and then some of that time, I, I, it's, it's, I guess it's getting close to the time where I'd moved into. Uh, adventure writing and I photographed a mountain biking book 
and I photographed a rail, uh, West Virginia rail trails. I rode all 32 of them and photographed them and did some articles for wonderful, uh, West Virginia, um, um, I'm leaving gaps out there, buddy. You know, it's just like, it's like I just, I just, I'm just looking forward all the time. I mean, I, it's it's hard for me to look back. It's it's like, what's my next gig? It's a life well lived. I, I do know that while you were a professor at West Virginia State, one of your students was a uh, young Morgan Spurlock. Yes, he was, and we're still great friends now. We're working on something as we speak. Uh, he's been a wonderful friend to me. When you you teach what you do, you teach creative pursuits like filmmaking and writing uh, to young people, is it, and I know this is a generalization, is it a a fulfilling thing for you? Is it a frustrating thing for you, especially where you were teaching? Because, you know, in in many ways, young people are brought up in West Virginia, or certainly they were up until a generation ago, with the expectation that, hey, look, you're going to go into the mining industry or you're going to work a blue-collar job, and and even the college students have limited prospects. So uh, talk to me a little bit about what you took away from teaching those kids and, and how that felt. Well, I, I will tell you, I can honestly tell you that I loved every minute, minute I spent in the classroom all 30 plus years i didn't like all the other stuff but i i just love teaching and i loved my students and you know was blessed to have all of them but i would open each class with uh, to tell them i said now i know you're buying into these stereotypes that people look down on us well let me tell you the reality and this is true Once I broke into the industry and I was getting meetings and and studios and Hollywood and producers in New York, when when they asked me where I was from and I would tell them, every single time they said, wow, you are so lucky that you get to do that there. You know, and I've not gotten any grief about it. I'm, I'm sure it's out there, but the way I deal with it, deal with any of the uh, horrors of the world is uh, I write something about it and, and turn it around. So that was sort of sort of my mantra with students: is it, you know, get over it. You, you, it's manufactured to hold you down. Don't do it. And my students have been very successful, not all necessarily in film, but in life and good human beings. Yeah, I couldn't be luckier. Oh, that's fantastic. And when when you and I started working together, you uh, had released uh, some graphic novels. You did a graphic novelization of Chillers, your first movie, and then did a couple of original stories that I think uh, somewhat preview the world that we're in today. The, The books Carbon and Salt were these fantastic graphic novels about uh, a group of, of West Virginia coal miners who become the, the heroes of, of these graphic novels. And, and I thought about them just earlier today preparing for the interview because, you know, we look at these essential workers all over the country who are going out into harm's way. And, and you know, you think just back to early April with those medical personnel going into those hospitals in Queens and Brooklyn and, and just facing those dangers. Well, 
you know, coal miners and many other industries, people have done that for generations where they go into danger every day. I think there's a real correlation there. Um, I'm curious about the difference for you in being a graphic novelist as opposed to a movie maker and, and if one or the other was more satisfying. Um, apples and oranges, but I can tell you what, what, why it happened. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to tell bigger stories <clears throat> always had. And I had this idea back in Williamson for, uh, carbon and, and basically it's, it's, what if carbon came back to life? I mean, uh, coal is life, you know, it's animal, visual kinds of things and came back in a horrible kind of way. <clears throat> but I knew that I would never be in the, the circle of production where I could afford that. And then I just sort of, I started reading, I hadn't read comics since I was a kid. I'm going, man, they've gotten really, really good. And, and I realized, well, I can do carbon now uh, because it's not like a movie. Every page costs the same. Whether there's giant coal monsters and flying demons, it's it's the same price. Right. So it was it was just a you know that's that's how I retold with uh, graphic novels. Uh, read a book about it, how to do it, and it wasn't that different than than writing a script and hiring the artist. But actually, I did I think something smart is that I didn't start with carbon because I wasn't known in the graphic novel world. So I went back to my most known property chillers which fit perfectly in the anthology style and what i did was brought um some of my favorite writers together with with me being the showrunner um and we did two volumes of, of new original um chiller stories and got the publishing deal with caliber and we stayed i've stayed with caliber uh since uh but the Killers books I use to build my my brand in the comics world, uh, but loved every you know I, I I could write killers every week. Some people in in the creative industry, you know, do sort of a, a very similar thing their entire career, and when they color outside the lines makes it very difficult for the public to, to figure him out. Uh, you think about a writer, for example, like John Grisham, who will forever be known as the guy who writes legal thrillers. I mean, he did a great book about baseball in Italy, but he still is going to be the, uh, the legal thriller writer. You are a little tougher to peg, though. I mean, you've been a filmmaker. You've been a graphic novelist. You've been a documentary filmmaker, a Fulbright scholar. Uh, and now you've gone back and done a couple of musical theater adaptations of your film properties. Uh, and, and I guess the next step are these, these children's books that you're doing. So is that by design that you want to do lots of different things, even though it makes, makes it a little harder for somebody to brand you? Or as an artist, do things just come to you and, and that's what has to come out? Funny you should bring that up because it's all your fault, Burke Allen. (laughs) (laughs) All roads in my current past have started with you. And God bless you for that. Uh, You introducing me to Scott Hill, the director of uh, Rocket Boys Festival and Theater West Virginia, 
who then booked me, or you booked me, on uh, Homer's uh, Rocket Boys Festival. And we all just became great friends. And the, the way uh, Paradise Park came about, the musical, was that when I first met uh, um, Scott mm-hmm. through you, um, he, he, he came up to me and he said, I just want to tell you that Paradise Park is, is my favorite movie. And I said, oh, well, thanks. You know, I, 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 hear, I hear that from some people. And um, so about the third time he brought it up, I said, well, if you love it so much, you could own it because I don't have the rights. And he bought it. (laughs) He bought the rights for the for the movie. And it's being remastered right now. Uh, It's going to look a whole lot better. Uh, Jeff Morrison's working on that now. Um, But then soon after, Scott approached me about what do you think about adapting it as a musical? And that I didn't even hesitate on that because I, I, we always call paradise park or hillbilly opera anyway. I mean, there, there were two big music numbers, show numbers in the film. And it, to me, it, it just, it just would fit perfectly, but it was, it was again, a, a retooling for me. And, um, Scott said, do you think Larry would, uh, Larry Gross would uh, write the music? And I said, I don't know. I can ask him. So we had calling for lunch. And I said, this is going to surprise you, buddy. Um, and we, we, we talked about it and we both said the same thing to each other. He said, I, Larry said, I don't, I don't know if I can, do, I don't know if I can do this, but you definitely should. And I said, I'm thinking the same thing. I don't know if I can do this, but you should. Uh, so I did the same thing I did with graphic novels is I ordered a book on Amazon, you know, how, how to write musicals, how to write for the stage. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's about the same, uh, you know, it just it actually the same word process systems I have, uh, you know, you just click over to the other one. So, um, that's, and, the, and then the, all of my film friends will, will, will rib me. And we'll tell you because I was never a fan of theater and still I'm not, I'm not a fan of live traditional dramatic or uh, non-musical theater, but I've always loved musicals. And they said, well, how, how can you love musicals? And, uh, and I said, well, the same reason I love opera and the same thing. I, I love pro wrestling. The, the suspension of disbelief is not there. You can just go, go into it. So, um, uh, that's about a long answer to, to, to how it happened, but, but basically, but Larry and I just took to it, and and we we both have stayed at it. We're working on a a, a big historic piece, and he's, uh, uh, like I said, he's he's writing the very last song for our first children's show that I think Theater of West Virginia is going to do next summer, uh, Mister Turtle's Garden Club, um, and you know I've been watching a lot of children's theater and. Um, well, you and I talked about this. Right, right, well, we were starting. It's like, man, this everything. I think everything is too long. I think every movie that's out is too long. I think every play is certainly too long. But I love these kids shows because they're like an hour or an hour and ten minutes. Right. Uh, and also, there's a children's. I mean, we're hoping all of our properties go bigger. But uh, there's a children's theater and 
every hill and holler town, you know? So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm digging it now. I mean, and the, uh, I guess that sort of, when I was doing this dirt turtle, which was kind of inspired by my garden club right, right here on, uh, you've met my kids right here on the West side. Sure. Um, it was like, okay, so I, it was right, right before your, your, uh, your Christmas show in Madison. I'd hurried up to, cause I, I, I was sort of nesting. I knew I needed to write something while I was, cause I was going to spend a month, which I did. I spent a month in Belize. So I started thinking about sitting here on the porch. I started thinking about, um, you know, uh, a kid's musical and, thinking about God's right in front of me, you know, except for the main character. Um, um, so instead of, and I talked to Larry, I talked with Larry about it and he, and he was, he was into the idea, but, but I worked differently this time. Instead of us sitting together and working all the way through it, I went ahead and wrote the script and wherever I thought a song should be, I just wrote description of what, what I'm trying to say in this song. And it's worked. It's worked out quite well. I don't know if we can do everyone like that. Um, Mark Scarpelli and I worked differently on Space Preachers, the musical. Um, but it's you know, there's just the most joy I have, and I guess it's age too. But you know, if you ask me what's the most important thing for me, show business would be in the top five. But uh, family and friends. And my garden club kids, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's the top of my life. So that's, and, and during this horrible pandemic, it's like, well, what do you do? Do you, do you, you fight against that? So that, that's, that's the way of me working through this. It's like, no matter how mean things are, you, you try to make them nice. That's, and I know I haven't done that in all my career, but uh, I'm trying to do it with this work now. Danny Boyd, our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast, who now is doing uh, children's theater and has a kid's book on the way from headline books. And that's got to be a whole different discipline, but I love what you just said there and in, in that you want to bring, uh, for lack of a better word, some some sweetness into the world in a world that, that really needs it. Um, do you have any words of, of wisdom that you might impart on people who are listening who think, man, if I could just make a movie – man, if I could just write a children's book or if I could take part in a musical, my life would be so much better. What would you tell that person? Put their butt in a chair. It's, 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 really, it's really what it takes. And, and read a book about it. You know, I mean, it's all out there. You, you, can, you can see how to do it. And, and, you know, whether you're successful or not, it makes you feel good. It, it, gives, it gives you purpose. Uh, like our new friend that you – you did the fastest publishing deal in history for me with <laughs> Kathy Teets and uh, headline books. I mean, literally, it was days. Um, yeah, I forget what your question was. Sorry, buddy. So you're thinking? Uh, well, we we're just talking about how how things come together, and and with with kids, and and how they can get into doing just some of these, just one of these amazing things that, that you've been able to accomplish. Because I know there are people that are listening right now that go, 
man, that's just totally out of reach. There's no way I could ever be a movie director. There's no way I could ever be in a film. There's no way I could write a book or a graphic novel. There's just no way I can't do it. What say you to that person? Uh, I, I say no. Is, is there not a better time for it now? You know, I, I came in with traditional film, and you you had to get you had to work your way up through distribution, and there there was a pretty tight gatekeeper. Now, now it's it's wide open. I mean, you can do it yourself. You can you can publish. I mean, you make your own movie. You can, uh, you know, there's downfalls with that. You know, anyone can do it. Everyone will do it. But no, there, there's no better time for that. And, and at the beginning of this, you always refer to my hometown of uh, Martinsburg. Actually, I'm Pikeside, right outside of Martinsburg, uh, as a as a bedroom community or something to DC. Didn't feel like that to us. I mean, it, it it was still it was still kind of far away. And I had, and it was the same way. I loved uh, the two things I loved the most was baseball and movies. But I thought, you know. A kid from West Virginia can't do this. And uh, from the story we just told, that's uh, the Nike brand, just just do it. And then we find, again, back back to our students and our fellow West Virginians, our, our young people, is that not only can we do it, but we do it better. And I, I really think that's the case. I mean, look at our group from, from Team Burke. I mean, it's like the dream team, you know? Well, you know, certainly there are lots of times where you can be underestimated in the world, but I really do think that if you put your mind to it, you can do just about anything. And I think you're a wonderful example of that, Danny. And, uh, I mean, you, you've got to be able to, to sit on that front porch and look back on these past four decades and go, man, I have lived the dream and then some. You've done some pretty incredible things, and hats off to you. Now, before we wrap up, the new book. Tell us about the new book, the new children's book, and when we can expect it and what it's about. The Adventures of Wandala. It's, it's a full title is Northeast, Southwest, The Adventures of Wandala. And this was a story that I made up for my girls. And you, you, know, you, know, you know my girls. When they were little, because I was starting to do a lot of international travel. And they were, you know, they like West Virginians, were kind of fearful of the outside world. Sure. So, so I, I made up a story about this, this little girl that had wanderlust that thought, that, you know, there was a better, another world out there, and and the people weren't all bad. And during the pandemic, uh, no, it wasn't it wasn't the pandemic because well, I just I'd heard about it, but it was like okay, like I said, I was nesting because I wanted to have a month away, but I happened to bring my laptop computer, uh, which I've never written, I've never written anything other than right here in front of my home desk unit. But I thought, oh, no, I'm going to take it. And I actually, even though I was in paradise and the, the lovely little uh, bayside town of Corazel, um, about four or five days in, I was kind of bored. And uh, for some reason, I thought to bring that outline that I had. And I wrote it during the day, you know, sitting in my boxers because it was hot. <laughs> <laughs> Belize and, will and, be uh, hot. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, wrote it. When I got back, I sent it to two people: our poet laureate, my, our dear friend Mark Harshman, and you. And you said, "Yeah, I like it." Um, and I saw, you know, where uh, some of your clients were connected with headline books. You made the introduction, and 
couple days later, there was a deal, and I've, I've hired the uh, uh, artist uh, Hector out of uh, out of Mexico, and he's he's done the uh, last illustrations. We just had the cover to do, and uh, just waiting for Kathy to see, you know, how how we piece the rest of it to, together. That's fantastic. A new kid's book from Danny Boyd. Who would have thunk it? You've done so many different things. And, oh, I almost forgot to ask you. We can't get away from this without talking about your foray into semi-professional wrestling. What semi? Dude, I got paid every time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I worked. I worked over. I mean, I, I, it's still hard for me to believe that, too, when I think about it, because it, it was a wanderlust thing. And I was getting and I was doing some adventure uh uh, writing and it was like you know I've always loved pro wrestling and this is probably the last window of time where I could you know I could maybe attempt it maybe I could be like a manager or something I was 48 years old and the company here uh, brought me in and said we'll do it under two conditions one you've got to use your actual name and two you've got to train like everyone else and I mean it was like going to marine boot camp but I did it, and a little over ten years, I've uh, worked. I worked nearly two hundred matches, four belts, two other foreign countries, uh, and again, lucky, lucky me to get to get to have had that had that experience. You're not a large man when you were in no. the wrestling ring with with other very large men. Were there times of fear when you looked over there and said, you know, just one false move and it's curtains for Danny Boyd? You know, the funny thing is the big guys, they treated me like a feather. It was the little guys that would hurt me. Uh, uh, but, I mean, it's, it's professional wrestling. I mean, you're you're – you're skilled to protect the other people. And no, I'm not a big guy. Um, uh, but I, I, I worked a gimmick that would work for a little guy, an old guy, uh, Professor Danger, being the world's smartest wrestler. Well, if you want to piss off West Virginians, you know, <laughs> uh, acting like you're smarter than anyone else, and half of them have been angry with their teachers anyway. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the gimmick was just over, you know, so it, 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 it almost always worked. And I even, I, I would even do professor danger as a, mostly as a heel, as a, as a bad guy. But, I, you know, I want a period of time toward the end where I worked babyface and it was over, you know, as, as a, as a good guy. So who knows again, again, when, lucky, lucky me, man, I'm just, I'm just blessed. Look at a life like Danny Boyd's, and you think anything is possible. You've done it all. You're like the, the Forrest Gump of West Virginians. You find yourself in some pretty amazing <laughs> situations. Danny, thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, best of luck with the children's book. Will you come back and talk to us more about it when it's out and, and available? Absolutely, but I can't wait to where I can see you and hug you in person. And thank you for all that you've brought into my life. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's my friend Danny Boyd. And you can visit him online at danielboyd.com and look for his books on amazon.com, wherever books are sold, and uh, the movies as well. Danny Boyd, our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by Speaker Match, the world's largest virtual online speakers bureau. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you for listening. Bye, everybody. <laughs>